This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Associate Digital Media Producer here at Christianity Today, and I'm joined by Mark Galley, our Editor-in-Chief, who just laughed at me <laughs> when I told him that we should laugh on the show more. Yeah, no, I was laughing with you. I was laughing with you. I never laugh at you. Unclear. Our listeners will not have audio of that okay. to confirm. I stand by my laugh. Mark, what if I say I definitely laugh at you sometimes? That's fine. <laughs> All right. It's okay to laugh at old white males in this culture. That's perfectly appropriate. All right. Well, I'm just fitting my generation stereotypes, right. I guess. All right. Good. Okay. Who's, who's joining us today? Joining us today is Marshall Shelley. He's the director of the Doctor of Ministry program at Denver Seminary and contributing editor of CT Pastors. Before that, he served leadership journal in many capacities, lastly as executive editor. Is the author of Well-Intentioned Dragons, Ministering to Problem People in Your Church, the general editor of the Quest Study Bible, co-author with Harold Myra of The Leadership Secrets of Billy Graham, and co-author with his father, church historian Bruce Shelley, of The Consumer Church, Can Evangelicals Win the World Without Losing Their Soul? Aside from the many journalism awards leadership received over the decades that Marshall served the publication, Marshall's most gracious decision was hiring an untested pastor from California who under Marshall's mentoring, has not done all that badly in the world of journalism. And he is thankful to Marshall to this day. Welcome, Marshall. Yes, well, I'm thankful that Mark Galley decided to shift from his church in Sacramento and join us on staff at uh, at Christianity Today. That was uh, one of my uh, my better, even if accidental, uh, good good decisions. Well, I bring that up because I get a lot of letters from people, and if if they praise me, I, I think they should recognize that you're the, the cause of my journalistic career. <laughs> and if they curse me, they should write you as well. <laughs> I see where this is going. Yes. Okay. <laughs> you thought it was a compliment, and then you were less clear about that. <laughs> wow. So how many years does that mean you guys go back? 29. Just a couple days ago. Yeah. That's right. Mark Galley and I were the... Uh, Part of the core of the Christianity Today softball team that uh, you know waged uh, waged its crusade for uh, many years with actually some success, Mark. So that was yeah, it's yeah. great fun to to do that before we got too old to throw a softball more more than yeah. across the diamond. Yeah, probably Marshall will tell you to speak for yourself, Mark. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, Marshall always had a better arm than I did. That's for sure. Well, there's a reason Mark and I are both interested in history is because we've lived enough of it that we can remember it. <laughs> exactly. All right, guys. Well, this is going to be a fun show, I'm sure. And I will not tell you how many months I was born after you guys met. It's okay. <laughs> no need. All right. Last year, Willow Creek Community Church founder and lead pastor Bill Hybels announced he was passing the baton to two heirs and would be retiring in October 2018. A lot has changed in 10 months. Since that announcement, 10 women have accused Hybels of misconduct. Earlier this week, the New York Times reported that one of the leader's former assistants accused the Willow Creek founder of repeatedly groping her. And on Sunday, Steve Carter, whom Hybels had indicated would succeed him as teaching pastor, announced his resignation. All of this occurred several days before Willow's Global Leadership Summit, an annual event hosted at Willow's Barrington campus and streamed at hundreds of locations around the world. 
As CT, the Chicago Tribune, and now the New York Times have reported on allegations of sexual misconduct and complaints about the Willow Creek Board's response, some less familiar with Willow Creek may wonder why this church deserves all this attention, seeing it as just another pastor sex scandal. Today on Quick to Listen, we'll explore just how many evangelical institutions and understandings of quote-unquote doing church highballs truly affected. What is all that will be impacted by these revelations, and how will the American evangelical church be broadly affected? All right, so we have a lot to get into today, and I'm excited to kind of get into this history of the evangelical movement a little bit more closely. Before that, though, I want to remind everyone that you can now support the podcast in another way other than becoming a subscriber, and it's really cool. You can do that by going to morect.com slash podcasts. And, you know, as Mark and I have talked about before, podcast isn't the only thing that we do here at CT. In fact, I took a reporting trip recently. Yeah. Tell us about that, because I think that's very central to what we're about at CT. So I had the chance to go to Washington, D.C. to cover something that the State Department was hosting called the it was a religious freedom ministerial where they essentially brought together people who work for NGOs and nonprofits and other civil society actors, as well as leaders from countries around the world to try to educate them, equip them, resource them, and maybe encourage them on the issue of international religious freedom. Yeah, that's a core, that's a core uh, concern of CTs and has been for decades. And I'm really glad we had an opportunity to be a part of that. Yeah. So I did not necessarily go as civil society. I know sometimes you go as participants when you go to things. Mark, I got to go there as a journalist and write a couple different stories, including one on Uzbekistan and religious freedom, which is a country that is actually pretty similar in size to the country we covered last week on the podcast, Canada, um, even though I'm sure our listeners are far less familiar with Central Asia. But they've made a lot of strides when it comes to the area of religious freedom. And so that was one of the things that was spotlighted as part of this larger event that was going on. Yeah, and I'd encourage listeners to be sure to check out Morgan's piece, I think, that preceded that, just telling the stories of some of the persecuted church across the world. They were very poignant. Yeah, very because powerful. there were also a lot of people who had been persecuted for their faith who spoke as part of the event as well. Yeah, I got to write a couple stories out of it, and it was a really cool thing to go and cover. So if you would like to read my coverage, you can go to the news and reporting part of our website. And if you would like to support this podcast and our larger work at CT, you can do that by going to morect.com slash podcast morect.com slash podcast. And we know some of you have already started giving and we truly appreciate that. So thank you so much. All right, Mark, it's time for a gut check. And so, you know, many of us learned about this most recent news about highballs through the New York Times on Sunday morning. And I would love to hear your two cents about that when you heard that news break. Well, my initial reaction was, why did the New York Times have access to the story and we didn't? <laughs> so it was journalistic jealousy, for one thing. <laughs> Second, it detailed, it put into more detail uh, some of the problems that uh, Bill has had at uh, Willow Creek over the years. So I'm sorry, I'm you know I've said this before in other stories. I'm a little old now to be too shocked and wonder if this is the uh, the last story we'll hear about this whole thing. Yeah, I, I think I saw the headline. I was out all day on Sunday and I saw the headline and forwarded it to the news team, but didn't necessarily think that it was necessarily going to be different than some of these other allegations that have been made. I think part of this podcast, I would say, is a little bit for me and maybe some who have just kind of taken for granted all that 
Willow has done, but may not be super familiar. So I am probably going to raise my hand a little bit when I see this as just like another faster sex scandal. There are people who have really lionized Bill Hybels that I'm sure are having completely different types of emotional and spiritual reactions to what's going on. But it's hard for me to kind of muster up the outrage or even just grief, I think, that other people are feeling right now. So I'm excited that we're going to do the show today. Yeah, me too. And Marshall is a perfect person to help us through it because Marshall was, I mean, the founding of leadership and the founding of Willow are kind of coincided back in the day, no? That's exactly right. I um, I graduated from college in 1975, and that was the year that Bill Hybels started this uh, this new new church, this uh, experimental church in some ways called Willow Creek Meeting in a Theater. And I remember uh, my first job after college was uh, in the Chicagoland area, and I heard stories about this uh, this new church at the Willow Creek Theater where people had to sit in the aisles and were actually sitting on stage because there was no other seating available to uh, hear this. Uh, this recent uh, grad from uh, Trinity College up in Deerfield uh, come and speak. He'd been a youth pastor, but this is really his first uh, his first pastorate, and uh, it got a lot of attention right from the get go. Well, that's really going to be fascinating, considering both of these, you know, Christianity Today and Leadership Journal and Willow Creek are both Chicagoland based institutions. So that type of anecdotal stuff sounds great, and I'm glad that you're going to be sharing that with us. I'm wondering if you can take us a little bit before. Willow Creek became a thing. What did worship and outreach look like before Willow Creek launched? Well, like uh, like Mark, I was raised in the church in the fifties uh, and sixties, and I would say in the in the fifties and sixties, I would I would characterize it as churches felt very distinct from culture. You, you spoke a different language when you were in church than when you were in the larger culture. Our music was different. You know, our vocabulary was different. We were talking about being saved. We were talking about. Um, being washed in the blood, we were talking about things that you just would not talk about in the uh, in the larger culture, and um, you know our music was different. You know we were we were singing choruses, but they were choruses by uh, Ralph Carmichael or some of these others. Uh, in the stars is handy work I see on the wings he speaks with majesty. But these were the the tunes, the music, the lyrics were not anything that would particularly communicate to anybody outside that that church culture. So there's really a really a a separation between church culture and the secular culture. And, uh, you know, different rules of behavior uh, existed in the church. You know, there were certain sins that we sort of recognized everybody struggled with, but there were other sins that, you know, we got very exorcised about. And uh, those were the sins that were highlighted during the sex, drugs, and rock and roll era of the 60s. And so, uh, you know, I think those of us in the church sort of felt like we were marginalized. You know, we were um, we were uh, very separate from the uh, from the larger culture. That was sort of the context that uh, was the socio dynamic of what was going on when uh, Bill Hybels uh, came along and uh, recognized that and said, "Boy, we we got to do something about that. It's just not you know a church is not going to be able to effectively reach unchurched Harry and Mary if uh, there's such a vast difference between our um, our cultures and our language and our music and our ways of behaving. So uh, that was that was part of. It. I think he was he was a missionary at heart and uh, really wanted to try to overcome that that chasm between uh, Christians and uh, those who were not believers. So I heard you mention a movie theater. Now I know today many churches meet at movie theaters. I don't think that was the case. That's exactly right. That was uh, this was this was a new a new thing. That you know the 
taking taking the gospel into secular turf was just unhurt. You know, it just wasn't anything anybody had uh, done. It was, uh, you know, as you say today, it's uh, it's fairly common to you know meet in uh, meet in secular venues. But and if you're not meeting in a bar, you're not really cool. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, yeah, nobody had tattoos then. You know, tattoos were seen as uh, vandalizing the uh, the temple of the Holy Spirit that God has uh, given you. So uh, yeah, it was it was just a very different time. All right, so movie theater aside, what else was Willow doing differently in in a way that was kind of like catching the attention and imagination of other evangelical churches? Well, they were doing some some I I, I would call them cosmetic or surface things. You know, they were they were doing um, contemporary um, music. They were doing you know they would they would bring the smoke machine in periodically. They would do they would do drama. They were just more intentional about their communication. And I guess that's probably, you know, at root, that's probably the most significant thing that uh, Willow Creek brought to the table was that in the past, the church had figured if we proclaim the gospel the way we're comfortable proclaiming it one more time, that's called faithfulness. Willow Creek came along and said, no, faithfulness is measured by how well you are speaking the language of the people who you want to reach. Willow Creek had studied communication, and the communication 101 is communication is not what you say, it's what the listeners hear. Willow Creek really took that to heart and said, okay, how can we make sure that uh, the the people we're speaking to hear the gospel, Uh, not just we saying it in a way that we're comfortable saying it one more time? And so they took a very strategic approach to church life, which was brand, in, in a lot of ways, it was brand new. I don't think uh, necessarily Willow Creek was the first to do it, but they were really the first to do it effectively and in a way that uh, that drew notice. They let the audience determine the effectiveness of the messaging. You know, they would ask questions like, is our message working? And, uh, you know, that just wasn't a question that was asked in the 50s and 60s. Uh, are people capable of understanding what we are trying to say? Uh, what are the obstacles? What what are we unintentionally doing that is a, an obstacle to the gospel being heard and understood? So, um, you know, for instance, they made use of uh, surveys. Uh, they went around and asked uh, asked people in the neighborhood around the church, what do you think about the church? What are some of the reasons you don't go? What, what do you consider some of the um, things that you, you know, might be interested in if the church offered? And so they, they allowed the audience to help shape the form and the format of their their services and their ministries. They also uh, tr- worked really hard at uh, taking down any barriers that would be perceived as religious to a uh, secular audience. I don't know if it's still true, but for years they never had a cross hanging in the sanctuary. Their sanctuary looked like an auditorium. They wanted people to feel comfortable there. The phrase that sums up the, the whole uh, enterprise would be called user-friendly, what we call user-friendly. Yeah, they didn't want anything to that they would have to explain, if at all possible. And so religious symbolism was was absent, as as Mark mentioned, the the crosses was not not uh, visible, and that of course was a controversial thing for a lot of uh, Christians who felt that uh, the cross is really at the uh, at the center of what the church is about. But uh, Willow Creek said, no, um, let's not let's not confuse people with symbols they may not understand until they have. Uh, They've heard the gospel in a in a voice and in a format and in language that is familiar to them. This is more than a sociological phenomenon because 
I was a Presbyterian patch, pastor who was offended by them not they're not having a cross <laughs> and not uh, being overboard about user friendly. So when I came to visit the offices of Christianity Today to interview for the job that uh, Marshall eventually hired me for, I went to, deliberately went to Willow Creek to frankly to go there and criticize it mentally as I was participating in worship. But I was, lo and behold, if I didn't feel that the Lord spoke to me through the sermon that morning, something really concrete and direct that I could not mistake for anything but a word from the Lord. So I do think beyond the sociological surface elements of what we're talking about here, uh, I do believe God was using the church in ways that went way deeper than that. In a way, Willow Creek was revolutionary in that previously churches, I think, assumed that all that was needed to reach uh, unbelievers with the gospel was simply to say it, say it one more time, and uh, you know, not do anything particularly different, but just you know, just just proclaim the words, say the words that were familiar to religious people to irreligious people, and expect them to uh, to respond. I think Willow Creek was were some of the the first to to realize that our culture has fundamentally shifted to a uh, it is it is spiritually blind and is not going to respond positively to a message that has grown perhaps either overly familiar or has grown stale. And uh, Willow Creek said, no, we need to communicate in language that that is going to get people's attention and be able to say it not the way we've said it, you know, thousands of times before, but say it in a way that in a way that they've never heard it before. And that was just a different way of thinking about uh, what a church's mission was. It was, it elevated creativity, it elevated, you know, innovation and uh, things that today we sort of take for granted. Uh, freshness is a virtue today, but it was considered novelty back in the uh, in the seventies. And until you know, it's, I, my my experience was similar to Mark, until I actually attended and said, "Wow, they are preaching the gospel!" But boy, they're doing it in a way I'd never heard before. But it's powerful. The other thing I think it elevates, too, was pragmatism and trying to figure out what was actually going to resonate with people. Marshall, tell us a little bit about where Bill Hybels was getting his training and his ideas for this and also his his conviction to kind of go against the grain when it came to how to operate a church. Well, you're asking me a question. I, I, I don't know if I can answer that because I'm not sure who the um, who all of the influential voices in his life were, but I know Gilbert Bilizekian, who is a the- theologian who was associated with Trinity and with Wheaton College. Dr. B, as he was known, became very influential in uh, Bill's life, and his uh, primary message was that the, the gospel is alive. It's not something that you pull out of a can that, you know, has been preserved from the, uh, you know, the first century, but it's it's something living, and it needs to be presented as a living, growing um, reality. That resonated with, with what Willow Creek was about. They wanted to present a living, uh, a living faith, not, uh, not something that was uh, influenced more by tradition than by uh, the effect it would have on people. I think a key verse that uh, Belzikian and Hybels latched onto early on, if, and you can correct me if you think if I've got this, but they, they really loved the Acts uh, chapter 2, verse 46, as a model of how they wanted the church to be. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and they ate food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of the people. And the Lord added to their number of those who are being saved. And I think, uh, you know, another uh, passage that uh, was was certainly there was the parable of the uh, pounds or the parable of the talents, where Jesus basically uh, condemns 
the one who took the talent that had been given and uh, buried it, you know, to protect it for the future, and uh, did not take a risk and invest it in uh, in something that would bring back a uh, you know a hundredfold. I've been at a number of gatherings of pastors who uh, have followed the Willow Creek approach, and uh, that that parable is used a lot. You know, I just want to I you know I just want to hear the words you know well done good and faithful servant, which of course is the words of the the master to the faithful servants who invested their talents and did not just try to preserve them. And so they they are risk takers. And uh, certainly Willow Creek was a risk taking. Uh, they, they felt that faith involved taking risks in order to uh, receive the return. And, uh, you know, that was a that was a different cultural vibe than you got in most churches of that time. This episode is brought to you by Church Law and Tax. Church Law and Tax understands the realities of church work, helping thousands of churches stay informed and get equipped with comprehensive resources on legal, tax, financial, and risk management matters. Do you have a question on housing allowance? Need information on selecting church insurance? Looking for insights on what is or isn't unrelated business income? Or how about some guidance on how to properly receive charitable contributions? ChurchLawAndTax.com equips you for success with access to the most respected and knowledgeable attorneys, accountants, financial advisors, and risk managers guiding churches today. Get the practical information and timely coverage you need to keep your church up to date and lead your ministry with confidence. Join ChurchLawAndTax.com today. This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible, a translation that is both faithful to the original languages and really easy to read. Today we are talking with Rachel Myers, who is the founder and CEO of She Reads Truth. Rachel, it is great to have you here. Thanks for having me. She Reads Truth started out with an app, but you guys also now have a Christian Standard Bible, a translation physical Bible. What was behind the idea of actually creating a physical version? I have always been an analog girl. I love being able to carry my Bible, to pick it up. I love the intentionality of, of seeing it and turning the pages. I like knowing where books of the Bible are when I turn to them. I like knowing and remembering where on the page is that verse that I read two weeks ago and being able to find it in that corner of the page. Beyond that, one of the lines in She Reads Truth's vision statement is we create beautiful, accessible Bible reading plans using old and new technology. So while we do have the app and it's awesome, we think that we should never advance in technology and and forget where we've come from and, and forget the awesome tangibility of an analog Bible in your hands. You can learn more about the Christian Standard Bible at csbible.com slash ct. My understanding is Bill's father is a was a fairly successful businessman. So I'm assuming some of that business savvy uh, was part of his DNA because a lot of what he did in his church was reminiscent of how corporations. In fact, I, I seem to recall back in the day that he looked up to McDonald's in the early years about how to go about creating a church culture that would be attractive to people. Well, I think it'd be accurate to say that there was a sacred impatience. There was a frustration that that the church was content not to speak the language of business, not to speak the language of the marketplace, not to speak the language of most people who were not 
thoroughly churched already. And uh, you know, he wanted to be able to reach people who hadn't already been reached. What is the Willow Creek Association, Marshall? Well, the Willow Creek Association was simply a group of like-minded churches, and uh, and it was sort of an indication of how much reach the uh, Willow Creek had. Willow Creek did not, you know, form a denomination. It was an independent church, but it was influential. It was it was uh, being effective in reaching its its neighborhood. And Willow Creek, I think, probably the first you know embryonic indication of of its extended influence was through publishing. You know. Um, a number of the uh, the staff there, uh, Judson Poling, Don Cousins, Bill Hybels, were were writing books that were being read, you know, widely and benefiting other congregations. And so I think it was in 1992 that the Willow Creek Association was formed, and uh, it it quickly rose to almost 13,000 uh, congregations that were part of the association. And it was not a it was not an institution; it was simply a network of uh, of like-minded churches. And they would uh, resource one another. They would be able to share ideas, uh, uh, stories of you know things that had worked, things that had not worked. And so it was simply a, uh, a leadership network to uh, extend and support the vision of uh, of effective outreach to an unchurched uh, unchurched world. And it still exists, correct? It still exists. Yes, indeed. In fact, um, later this week, the Willow Creek's uh, Willow Creek Association. Host it's now known primarily for the uh, conference that it uh, sponsors called the Global Leadership Summit, which uh, in a lot of ways has uh, uh, eclipsed you know the Willow Creek Church in terms of its uh, reach and influence globally. But uh, I think this year they're planning to have over 700 sites in 130 countries, and which is just a phenomenal. There no other leadership conference in the world has that kind of that kind of reach. I attended one a few years ago down in Managua, Nicaragua, and uh, you know, sitting surrounded by um, Nicaraguan church leaders who who came to uh, listen to. Uh, in most cases, it was translations of presentations that had been uh, delivered at uh, South Barrington, but they they also did have one or two uh, Nicaraguan speakers who were giving leadership talks there in uh, in Managua in Spanish. And so uh, this has been a you know, very important conference for highlighting the importance of leadership. And I guess that, that, that would have to be one of the other things that Willow Creek has really emphasized, um, the importance of the leadership gift, uh, recognizing that, as uh, Willow Creek often says, everything rises and falls with leadership, uh, that, it's, uh, that that has sort of been downplayed in uh, previous generations, uh, emphasizing Sort of the uh, the congregation as a whole being the uh, the means of the means of grace or the means of outreach, and um, Willow Creek was unabashedly saying, "Well, you know, congregations can drift. Uh, it takes a leader to interrupt drift and cause a group to go from here to there, and there meaning uh, you know where the uh, where the group is called to go and to accomplish its purpose." Yeah, I, I do want to talk about this conference for a second. You talked about it being really important for church leaders. But one of the interesting things about this conference is that it seems to pull people who are not necessarily just all evangelical rock stars, but um, looks to the secular world for leadership as well. Can you talk about some of the controversies that have surrounded it over the years? Well, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, the Global Leadership Summit over the years has, uh, has emphasized leadership, not, not necessarily Christian leadership. 
leadership has become a discipline in its own right. It is now taught in schools, including you know Denver Seminary, where I teach, but it's taught in secular schools. There are courses in uh, in leadership development. There's courses in leadership itself, and uh, so the uh, Global Leadership Summit, you know, definitely embraced a wide understanding of leadership. And so speakers would come from the business world. You know, they had Jack Welch from uh, from from GE. They had Colin Powell from uh, the State Department or from the military. They had Norman Schwarzkopf, you know, the uh, the general of Desert Storm. They had uh, the, the most controversial one was when uh, they invited former President Bill Clinton to come and speak. And of course, President Clinton was 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 one that um, many Christians, particularly conservative Christians, uh, really thought was one of the worst presidents of all time and uh, considered him an immoral and uh, uh, incompetent leader. But um, he was invited to the Global Leadership Summit to speak on leadership. That was uh, costly in terms of uh, you know a lot of people considering that uh, that was a that was a bridge too far. That was a step uh, too far in. Uh, reaching out to uh, secular leadership uh, voices. But uh, the summit did um, survive that and continued to grow even after that uh, that experience. Yeah, and I just wanted to give people a little bit of an update on what the fallout of this Hybels actions have been. Apparently this year, 111 host sites for the Global Leadership Summit have canceled. And 67 of those sites were ones that had hosted the summit in the past and the rest were sites that we're going to be hosting for the first time. So there has been some fallout with regards to all of that happening. Marshall, in recent years, Willow Creek has become more egalitarian. They let women serve as pastors and preach from the pulpit. In fact, we mentioned earlier that Hybels had named two different heirs to succeed him and that one of them had resigned. The one that is still on is is the new executive pastor, and her name is Heather Larson. She is kind of a result of this heritage that they have. Willow also started getting more involved in social justice. That's especially true with regards to race and the Israel-Palestine conflict. How did all of these changes affect its reputation among evangelical churches? All of these are an example of um, Willow Creek trying to demonstrate effective leadership in the in the in the context in which it's uh, in which it's placed. Leadership means um, well, Max Dupree, who was a former uh, board member at Fuller Seminary and the CEO of uh, Herman Miller Furniture Company, heard it very well. He said the first task of a leader is to define reality. And uh, that reality means, uh, defining reality means, you know, understanding the situation we are currently in and then uh, the, the reality of where does God want us to go? What's the next step for our organization? What uh, what should we be investing in? That, I think, is what uh, Willow Creek was doing when they were saying, okay, what are the, what's the situation we are in now and what is, is God calling us to do to um, effectively communicate and to demonstrate the gospel? Very early on, uh, you know, Willow Creek did not did not use biblical language for its government structure. You know, it didn't have elders or deacons. It it had a uh, a board, and uh, you know, board members. You know, as would be true in many many you know businesses, board members were uh, were drawn from both men and women. They uh, had women as as teaching pastors. Um, Recognizing their their gifts and uh, invited them to to serve, and so I think Willow Creek would say that's that's how we are trying to live out you know live out the gospel uh, rather than simply following 
the forms. We were trying to um, embody the functions of uh, of the gospel, not just uh, sticking to the the language and to the forms of, of the past. So, um, getting involved in social justice, yes, they. Uh, they had what they called the Justice Journey that went down to Selma, uh, along with uh, a you know, prominent African-American congregation in Chicago, Salem Baptist. Uh, Willow Creek and Salem Baptist had joint trips down there to, um, to Selma to be able to uh, walk in the footsteps of some of the civil rights leaders and some of the civil rights movement. They've been uh, you know, working to try to bring about racial reconciliation in, uh, in a number of ways. More recently, um, Working with uh, Telos, which is an organization that uh, has the uh, motto uh, "Pro-Israel, Pro-Palestine, Pro-Peace," trying to find ways for Palestinians and Israelis uh, to uh, live at peace with uh, with one another. You know, it's it's unusual for you know a church the size of uh, Willow to take on some of these uh, major social challenges, but uh, you know they have been uh, been involved in that, and uh, you know that's I would I would. Uh, Credit that back to uh, you know the the sense of what leadership is about, trying to bring the uh, the focus of the church onto uh, you know what is most uh, strategic, most needed in today's context. Bill Hybels was very teachable when he was shown that something was seriously wrong with the way they were doing church, or there are many examples of that. But I remember uh, sitting in a, a leadership forum panel to talk about uh, racial reconciliation in the church. and But when I asked them a question, so we all recognize this as a problem of churches having a hard time integrating people of other cultures into their church. What do you think we can do about it? He actually had like a seven-point plan he was going to put into effect or is already putting into effect on how to make his congregation more multiracial and multiethnic. So that's the way he thought and the way he acted. So when he decided something needed to be done, it wasn't just a pie-in-the-sky dream. It was something he ha- he had a gift for saying, that these are the seven steps we're going to take to get there. Is it fair to consider Bill Hybels the driver behind all of these initiatives? Everything comes down to leadership. And so in one sense, uh, the founding the founding pastor and the ongoing pastor uh, is, yes, uh, primarily responsible for that. That said, all the good ideas didn't originate in uh, in one person's mind. You know, one one of the tasks of leadership is to gather other strong leaders, and I think over the years, um, Willow has been able to attract other strong leaders to uh, to take responsibility for various things, including the Willow Creek Association, including some of the ministries, uh, Promised Land, which was their children's ministry, which uh, has taken you know took on a life of its own. Some of these other social justice ministries, the uh, Cars Ministry, where people donate uh, used cars and get them fixed up, and they give them to uh, single moms. There are lots of major enterprises that are under the uh, Willow Creek umbrella that have uh, required excellent leadership at a number of levels. So I would say, is uh, one person the driver for all of those? No, uh, but certainly um, Bill Hybels has been very influential in uh, creating that culture that allows those forms of leadership to thrive. So as we mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, even before these allegations broke. Hybels had been planning to retire this fall, um, but obviously the retirement of someone can almost feel like a, a celebration and a passing of the baton versus kind of the disgrace that is accompanying this entire situation right now. Um, notably, Scott McKnight, who is an author and blogger and professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary, who has attended this church for a number of years. I don't think he attends it now, though. He wrote this on his blog yesterday, which is 
What I do know is this. Bill Hybels and Willow Creek's leadership have undone 40 years of trust for many. And I'm wondering, you know, Marshall, you've seen your fair share of ministry letdowns and betrayals and of leaders, you know, not necessarily living out the integrity that they had preached. What do you think of Scott's remarks and of where trust is going to be for for many Christians towards Willow Creek and the various ministries that it's launched and expanded? He may be right, but I hope he's wrong. Um, uh, I've, you know, as, as you mentioned, I've been long enough. I saw I saw the Jim Baker televangelist scandals back in the uh, '80s, and uh, PTL Ministries was a was a huge, um, hugely influential, particularly on television. Um, and when Jim Baker fell, the whole thing tumbled, and uh, you know, PTL does not exist today. So it's it's possible for ministries because of the you know, sends the leader to uh, completely collapse. I don't think that's going to completely be the case in uh, at, in the case of Willow Creek. You know, certainly it's going through a very difficult, painful, and humiliating time. Now there's issues of justice that need to, you know, justice to the victims of some of this misbehavior uh, just have to be addressed. I heard somebody say today that love in public is called justice. And so we need some of that public love to be exercised here and so I don't know how all that is going to uh, affect the institution of Willow Creek, but I do know that Willow Creek's influence goes beyond the institution. Even if Willow Creek suffers, I don't think the the actions here have undone the forty years of extended influence. Uh, you know, all of the the um, you know thirteen thousand churches in the Willow Creek Association are not going to go away because of you know the sins of of, of one man. You know the church. The church is going to survive. The church, you know, Big C is going to survive, and uh, I think Willow Creek's uh, influence has been a positive thing on these thirteen thousand churches and the multiplied hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people that have been uh, benefited as a result of these uh, user-friendly, seeker-sensitive churches that have uh, sprouted up around the around the world as a result. So uh, yes, you know, one institution maybe uh, the foundations may be shaken at this uh, at this point, but the uh, the effect of this church is going to continue on, and uh, it's been a very positive thing for the kingdom. It it is fascinating, right? How we can even be asking this question of you know if a forty year institution can make it because of the actions of one person, right? I mean, that's kind of goes back to the importance that is placed on leadership and and how all of that works for better or for worse. Right. Yeah, we've we've seen other churches similarly after uh, Robert Schuler stepped down. You know, there was a real there was real conflict. The Crystal Cathedral had to sell its campus, and it's now owned by the Archdiocese of uh, the, the Catholic Archdiocese, and a, a Hispanic church is uh, meeting there currently. I think that uh, you know the fact that the Crystal Cathedral's foundations were shaken doesn't mean that uh, the church is going to go away. It's it may take on different forms, but. Uh, you know the gospel is going to continue to be proclaimed and demonstrated, and, uh, and that's you know, that's one thing we have you know the assurance of Scripture on that uh, you know I will be with you till the end of the age, Jesus said, and uh, it may not be in a particular institutional form, but it's uh, you know the gospel is going to continue to be embodied. Well, thank you, Marshall, for all of that really great history and information. If you would like to give us feedback about all of this or point out gently anything that we missed or didn't get into enough, you can do that by going to podcast at christianitytoday.com and sending us an email. You can also go on Twitter. We're at CT Podcasts. 
All right, now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, which is when everyone gets to share something that's brought them joy in the past week. All yours, Mark. Okay, well, I went to a talk this week on uh, John Paul II's Theology of the Body. It was given at a small group uh, in a local a local bar of all places. But again, it was one of those talks that uh, is formally philosophical and theological in nature because John Paul's uh, writings on that are impenetrable, frankly. They're very hard to understand just reading them, but there have been a lot of interpreters of that over the years. We've written a few articles in CT about it. Matthew Anderson has written a book, one of our uh, CT colleagues in the sense of uh, he's a fan of ours and we're a fan of his stuff, has written a book on it. But this was a presentation by a man who gives talks about this, especially to young people, uh, especially to high schoolers, to help them understand God's overarching plan for the world and how it's it's very bodily and, and it manifests itself in our bodies, in our world, very tangible. And it was just one of those talks that uh, the way he did it and the stories he told and the way he integrated it with Scripture, it just made you... Uh, he kept on talking about, he kept on framing it as a love story between God and humankind, and and then using various and sundry stories to emphasize that. It was just very powerful. Isn't it cool when someone shares something about something you thought you know about, but in a different way, and you just hear it differently? Yeah, it's really good. Mark, where can people find you? I publish something called the Galley Report, or CT publishes it. I just write it up. It's a uh, newsletter that goes out weekly, and I uh, link to stories I find interesting, and I comment on them. And you can find that at ChristianityToday.com slash The Galley Report. That's G-A-L-L-I, not E-Y. Marshall, you ready? Oh, absolutely. Well, when you work with uh, 100 uh, doctoral students, I, I find great joy in that. My job at Denver Seminary is uh, helping students with their research projects and their doctoral theses as well as uh, recruiting students for the program. So uh, in both of those areas, I had a, a source of joy this week. One of our students came in. Uh, he, he's the pastor at a uh, church not, uh, not far from Denver. And uh, his doctoral thesis is going to be on can the sins of the past affect the present and the future of the congregation. And he had, uh, he had discovered that the Ku Klux Klan back in the 1940s had been a, a big supporter of his congregation. And uh, he's doing research now on the various ways that the Klan's influence has continued to uh, to affect the church, and he's determined to uh, uh, help uh, repent and to free the church from the bondage of uh, some of the sins of the past. And I just wanted to con- commend him, and I just drew great joy from the from the courage and from the uh, wisdom that he's uh, exhibiting as he uh, as he approaches that. At the same time, I got a call um, just yesterday from a from an uh, African-American pastor who uh, spent 20 years in the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps sent him, to, uh, sent him to Africa, and when he got out of the Marine Corps, he joined the Peace Corps, and as a, as a member of the Peace Corps, he planted churches in Congo and in South Africa, and now he's coming back and wanting to do doctoral work to help equip him for his uh, ministry of overseeing these churches in an African context. And I'm thinking, my goodness, if I can, if I can work with a uh, you know, a former Marine and a Peace Corps worker to uh, help equip him to do apostolic work in Africa. That is a joy. I'm like excited by your precious moments. Both of those are so interesting. Thank you for sharing those. Marshall, are you, do you have a website? Are you on Twitter? Where can people find you? I do not have a website or Twitter, but I can be reached at uh, marshall.shelley at uh, denverseminary.edu. And I would be happy to interact with anybody who's listened to this podcast. All right. My precious moment is not necessarily on the more joyful end, but I am reading a book that may be familiar to both of you guys called Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. 
It is one of the best books. Most people who listen to this podcast know that I'm only reading books by or about Native Americans this year. And this book has probably the most amount of, I don't know, say primary sources from the Native Americans themselves. There's just a lot of quotes from them that you get to hear them talking about the conflict in their own terms. It basically covers 1860 to the end of the 19th century in America, and it's very centered on the perspectives of the indigenous people as they were interacting with different parts of the military, many of them kind of like left over from the Civil War who were fighting them. Anyway, it's just incredibly fascinating. I really enjoy the writing, and I can't really say that I enjoy the book because it's incredibly harrowing and there's already been multiple massacres to contend with, but I really do appreciate learning this history and I'm glad to have picked up this book. All right, people can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, which is where we ask that you rate and review the show. Thank you to everyone who has done that. But we are also available almost everywhere else where you get your podcasts if you'd prefer to listen to us there as well. As a reminder, if you want to support the podcast, you can do so by going to morect.com slash podcast. That's morect.com slash podcast. And this podcast is produced by myself, Cray Allred and Richard Clark. We will see you all next week. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.